Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you're connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jason Zenger, and I'm joined by my co-host, the famous Jim Carr. Yes, I am. Well, we're celebrity podcasters now, right? <laughs> Stop with that. <laughs> you got to just own you know it, it, baby. You, you got to own it, You know baby. it annoys me when you say that. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's why I say it. So welcome back to the United States, Jim. Thanks. Thanks. It's funny you said that. I just got back from Ireland with uh, my wife. Did you notice how I said Ireland? Yeah. Yeah. I, I picked up the brogue a, brogue a little bit. in your voice, yeah. And it just, just so everybody knows, my grandfather is from Ireland in uh, County Mayo in Swinford. So I was able to go back to that small village and, and, and kind of get that feel of small village Ireland living. And um, But anyway, we're at the American Airlines check-in desk and... We had to get rebooked on a seat, and the guy said something about your status, and I said, well, so you know, I am a celebrity podcaster. And every time- My wife about fell on the floor dying. Yeah, and, and just so everybody knows, when Jim, Jim does say this quite, a little too often, and it embarrasses me, and I usually you walk the other direction- buddy. I, I usually walk the other direction when he says that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> own it it's all about it's all about having fun and it uh, is yeah no you do bring some fun to the yeah, equation yeah that's so what I it's all about that. you know manufacturing is challenging right yeah so we and need it's usually boring but we it's try usually to make bo- it less boring we're not boring i i don't think we're boring but anyway i had a great trip it was 11 days probably for me that was a couple days too many i i know i wanted to get back you know i like to work i know you like to yeah, work you told Jason. me you were quoting a job while you were you know on vacation know, and your wife was annoyed with you and you're talking to me too while you're on I know. vacation and that's okay i i don't mind doing that i i enjoy my my work and and what i do but I still think for me, 11 days was a bit much. I wanted to get back and I wanted to feel good and I wanted to get back in my exercise routine and, and I'm back. So yeah. So, good. so let's talk about one of, or not the most famous manufacturing institution in Ireland. Um, did you drink any Guinness beer when you were there? Absolutely. And if you ever go there to any of our listeners, are you Jason, Guinness is the number one tourist attraction in all of Ireland. Oh, I can believe it. It is Disney World for Ireland. So it did is you know, so cool. Did, you probably know this, but Guinness has been around for like 300 and some years. Yes, I do. I, I, mean, I learned everything crazy. about it. Yeah. I, so I actually, you know, I read a lot of books. I know that. And there's a book that's been in my little like catalog of books that are like to be read. And it's a, it's a book called... In Search of God and Guinness. And it's a, it's a whole story about how the Guinness family, when they started, they were really trendsetters as it related to interweaving not only their faith, but also social wellness for their um, staff into the company. Oh, they and They built tri- homes yeah, all in that area. And I they, mean, they attribute a lot of that to the um, just how successful that the company was. And actually, one of my uh, men that's still alive, um, somebody that I listen to all the time, a guy named Oz Guinness, who was like great-great-grandson of one of the founders of the, the company. So, right. I mean, it's a great institution. I mean, and their story is amazing. another cool thing, which I particularly like about Guinness, they have a really savvy marketing company or plan. Oh, they do. They've been yeah, known good for their marketing campaigns for many, many, many years going back 20, So they don't 30, make 40. chips, but they are a kind of essentially oh. a manufacturing company that brings some of those same types of characteristics into how they do things. I think it's the biggest brewery 
in all of Europe. Yeah, I quite believe frankly. it. And you know, it's kind of funny. So I don't drink a lot. I like to have. Have a, you ever had a, a beer? Oh, I love Guinness. So oh. like my everyday beer would be like a Guinness. My wife thinks really? it's gross. Yeah. So I don't like Budweiser and stuff like that. I like the thick. I never knew that um, about you. Yeah, I don't. I. I'm, I know it's bad to say. I'm not really a big fan of American beers. Okay. Um, so I like Guinness. I like a drink called the Black Velvet. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. So I should. I, I was a bartender. Drink, I actually back drink in the day. what's called the Poor Man's Black Velvet. So the original Black Velvet is half Guinness, half champagne, and I drink half Guinness, half cider. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. I've known you for because I don't drink now. a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But when I do, I drink Guinness. I, so in addition to the Guinness, we also did Teeling's Irish whiskey and Jameson Irish whiskey too. So that was, it opened up my eyes and ears and my throat uh, to tasting that because uh, it was, that was really cool. Uh, I actually have a, an affinity now for Irish whiskey. So that's great. And so I never did before. One of the things that I want to kind of bring to light as it relates to this podcast episode is the fact that Guinness has been around for hundreds of years, so many generations, and they actually have a plan for why they have been able to go through so many successive generations of the Guinness family. I don't think the Guinness family owns the actual company anymore. I think they've they've since sold out. I could be wrong about that and somebody can correct me, but they actually have a plan and they have a reason why they've they've made it as far as they have. And that's going to be part of the point of the um, interview for today as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to it. Yeah, Tell absolutely. me about it. Before we get there, why don't we talk about it? What, what's going on at Car Machine and Tool? The place didn't burn to the ground while you were Did gone. Not. So uh, Ryan took going. well care. Well, my team... Because it's not one person running a business, right? right? It's a team of people, and I, you know, I left knowing that I was leaving it in good hands with the entire team, and you know, we had some communication while I was gone, and they did really well. But the big thing is, we're getting our brand new Mazak horizontal next week. So the build up to that is huge. It's the biggest, most expensive machine in the history of car machine and tool. It's super technological and we're going to be able to do things we've never done before. And it's going to open up our business. You know, we're diversifying. Uh, we'll be able to take in new types of work and I'm super excited. And so is my team as well. That's so great. We're yeah, my, build my, a marketing plan around the new machine. That's so. great. My, my VMI man, I haven't been to your shop in actually quite a while. Right. I and, want you to come in. Yeah. And my VMI manager, who um, was in your shop just recently, he did tell me, he was like, have you been to car in a while? I was like, no, I actually haven't. And he was like, it's packed in there and the place is pretty crazy. (laughs) We're changing a lot. So that's great. We're getting a lot done. That's great. It's exciting. Yeah. Good. Good for you. Thank you. So we also have some manufacturing news. Um, would yeah, you like to, I was. Uh, I was really. This one. This one kind of shocked me a little bit when you threw it at me. I was. Um, it's going in the opposite direction, but I went through the article and read it, and it's bu- called "Bye Bye Robot." Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Or "Bye Robot Bringing Back Human Workers Bucks Manufacturing Trends." Well, boy, that says it all because all we've been talking about is replacing making, people with robots. Is replacing and how. How amazing that is, and now you need how, automation. The automation, you got to do it. But. I actually had a conversation um, just the other day with um, someone from Universal Robots, uh, the company that Brian Panic from one of our previous episodes, yeah, is he's partnered our good up with, and Panic they're, they're interested in talking to me about some kind of collaboration um, in the future. But yeah, this is definitely interesting in that it goes against um, that whole robotic trend. Absolutely, but it goes towards that. Whole, I don't know if you ever heard of the term long tail. No, I haven't. Okay. Well, yes, I have, as a matter of fact. Okay, so the whole idea of a long tail is, you know, back in the day, you would make 
one product and everybody would use it. Well, nowadays, everybody wants customize everything. So instead of buying a pair of gym shoes that they make a million of, you're like, I want to design my own gym shoe. So I want it in these colors with my name on the back and you know all this other kind of stuff. So everything is customized. That's what it talks about in this episode is that the reason that they're talking about replacing robots with humans is because of that customization and the need for flexibilities that robots simply will never be able to bring to the table at this point. Right. And they're not, and the article goes on to say, and by the way, this is a Forbes article written by a gentleman by the name of Paul Reisner on March 26th. Right. And if, if you want to read the full article, it goes on to say that they still believe, and he still believes, because it's 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 his opinion, um, that robotic automation is still relevant, and he sees that it's gonna, you know, it's still gonna be influential in the future of the art industry. Oh, yeah, don't get however, it. Yeah. however, they're finding that they the robots can't adapt to change that quickly, much like a human can. Well, they need to be programmed. You need yes, they need to be programmed, and it's great for you know labor and intensive work you know robots don't get tired Repeated work yeah exactly and, and i don't really see robotic technology at car machine and tool yet because you know we're low volume and we, we adapt to change extremely fast at car and you know we can we can make changes very very quickly but it goes on to say i thought this was funny uh, mercedes-benz is um utilizing this new uh change from robots back to human operators yeah this wasn't just some random manufacturing company that nobody has ever heard of this is mercedes-benz that they're citing um in this trend and they're saying mercedes-benz is actually firing their robots so i thought yeah. that was kind i think of- it's kind of tongue-in-cheek and they're probably going to be reallocating those robots in different areas and i think that there's I think there's a little bit of uh, like editorial play as it relates to this trend of because I-, I believe that the, don't get this wrong the robotic trend is is not decreasing it's increasing I think that this was written in a in a bit of a tongue in cheek way in that humans are being utilized in a different manner alongside the robotic evolution and you know how they're becoming more prevalent as well. Right. Somebody from Toyota was quoted as saying, we can't forget the value of human flexibility. And that's really, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And if you're going to have a flexible manufacturing company, you can't find anything better than the human flexibility opportunity. No doubt about it. And you know what? Actually, it's kind of funny. I didn't plan this, but we get into this a little bit during um, my interview with Mike Polizzi with Heartland Cutting Tools, because we talk about how him and I very much have been partners in productivity for our customers. And one of the reasons we have is that Mike has, and and we have as a part of our culture, a level of empathy for the manufacturing community such that sometimes there's spikes in productions and all of your special made tools are used up and then the machine goes down. Well, you need somebody that can understand and bring a level of empathy to the equation and say, okay, let's shut that machine down and let's start making new tools so that we can get this customer back up and into, into production. What was the main objective to interviewing Mike Polizzi with Heartland? Well, Mike is a friend and he's a business partner of mine. So I do know him. I know that he runs a very 
good business. His, he, he is a very well-run business, and he is bucking the trend that I see happening a lot of times in the tool and cutter grinding industry where a lot of these companies are going out of business because they haven't reinvested they haven't in te- new they technology. They haven't adapted new technology. I hear it all they the time, don't, man. They're not working on their business as opposed to working in their business. And Mike is very much bucking that trend, and he has a very good plan for how he is running his business. And I just thought that he could bring some great insight to the Metalworking Nation about how he's a manufacturer, but he's also a service provider along with us to the manufacturing industry. Got it. Well, so, I'm excited to listen to the uh, interview. Why don't we go to that interview now? Let's do it. <laughs> So, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Welcome to the Making Ships podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jason, for having me. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, I have to tell you a story to start us off. So for many, many years, I've actually been wanting to start my own tool grinding service for our customers. So, of course, you know, when, when... we are selling standard cutting tools to customers. We're always going to the shops and we're seeing a need from our customers for specials. And, you know, for so many years, Tom Sanger would, would, who we featured on uh, our last episode, would go, I mean, you can't do it. Stay in your lane. I'm glad Tom said that. And we do act as an extension or your arm for that. So hopefully it's something that uh, if the time comes and you want to talk about it more, we can definitely talk about it more. But uh, we feel like we work for our distributors. That's great. And the topic of this episode is going to be the five points as to why Heartland Cutting Tools has made it to a third generation. So we're going to go through these point by point, and we're going to actually get into a little bit as to why your partnerships work so well. So the point number one that you gave me was just the experience that you've gone through since being in the uh, the tool grinding business. So tell us a little bit about this. You started out from the ground floor, correct? Sure. When uh, I started there, uh, a funny story, I actually showed up in a three-piece suit back in the day. I had an Italian suit with a vest on and my father-in-law looked at me and he said, uh, everybody starts in the shop, so you better take the tie and the vest off and get out there. And, you know, looking back over the 30 years, I think that's one of the greatest things uh, is learning how to manufacture the cutting tools. So why did you show up in a, in a suit and tie? What were you thinking? Did you well, not understand the business at that well, point? Well, you know, after... <laughs> after, uh, after or were you college, selling insurance prior? You know, I, I wasn't the greatest student in college. And, and uh, I went to work uh, selling uh, food, food commodities, if you will. And they gave me my last paycheck. I happened to be on an airplane with my then high school sweetheart, my now wife. And she said, oh, my dad had just moved out to Cary, Illinois, and he's looking for somebody. So, you know, at the age of 21 or 22, I think it was 22, that's as far as the conversation went. I didn't know it would be manufacturing. I thought for sure I'd be selling something. So I showed up in my best suit and uh, white shirt, and sure enough, he looked at me. He was a big man uh, with large hands, quite intimidating, and he wasn't a salesman himself. He loved working in the shop. So he said, if you're going to learn the trade, you have to go out on a brown and sharp number five grinder. And sure enough, I think the first six months of working there, I did nothing but grind tools on a brown and sharp number five grinder. And I said, oh boy, what am I doing? Because... I was brought up uh, as not the most technical guy. Um, We bartered for everything growing up in our family. So learning the trade was something I look back and say, wow, uh, I'm amazed I did. And actually, being a third-generation company, both my father-in-law and his father also worked in the shop. And one thing they never had was a great marketing arm. So 
Yeah, that's where we are today. I look back on that and say to myself, I'm so glad I started on that manual grinder. And to this day, I still go out in the shop, Jason, and work from time to time. How specifically has that helped you? Do you have recent situations where just your experience um, so many years ago working on that Brown and Sharp uh, has been instrumental in solving a customer's problem or just making sure that a, a tool is properly manufactured? It's a great topic. I listen to some of your other episodes and you're always talking to Jim, you know, maybe, hey, Jim, what about five axis machining? And hey, Jim, what about three axis? And what, you know, a lot of those questions can go all the way back to not just sitting at the spindle five years ago. When I first started learning how to grind a tool and manufacture a special, uh, we learned how to grind back taper when needed. Uh, was a reamer different than a drill? So the applications that we are now putting into reality on somebody's machine at an end user, I was learning how to make that tool 20, 30 years ago. The question being, how does it help when you know how to manufacture or work in the shop? How does it help when you're actually selling the tools? One great point is I remember being at a customer one time and he asked how we centerless ground the tools. And I was able to answer that. You know, there's different ways to do it. Do you in-feed? Do you through-feed? And by telling this customer the way we did it and what would work for his application... The sale was easy right there. I didn't have to talk about the price of the tool or the lead time. I was able to talk about how we actually manufactured the tool. That's great. So would you recommend, so say um, there's a shop owner out there and it could be somebody manufacturing special tools. It could be somebody running a job shop, somebody running a you know production machining company for the automotive or aerospace industry. And they have children that want to get into the business. Say they're a recent college graduate, never gotten their hands dirty. Would you recommend or even encourage them, you got to start them off getting dirty? Oh, this is a very uh, difficult question to answer. I'll speak personally. My wife and I, uh, being a third-generation company, we said to ourselves we did not want to bring our children into the business. So I'll answer this from my point of view. Oh, we'll get to that question in a second. Time. And so if we're going to say what is the best way to sell a tool, I would say yes. I'll answer your question by saying everybody should learn, even a young sales engineer. We have recently hired a new engineer named Alex. We ask them to go out in the shop and learn how the machines run, learn how to make the tools. So I think that's the best way to do it. And you're seeing more and more sales persons in the industry come out of the manufacturing plant floor. So I think that's the best way to so go. So maybe they start out there six to 12 months and then they decide, you know what, this is great, the experience, but I don't necessarily uh, want to do this um, for the rest of my life. A lot of people, even though they might like to work with their hands, they actually don't want to work in the shop, but they want to put that through to customer service, uh, engineering, sales, and support. But if you don't know what your shop actually does in the back, you really won't have a a very successful time selling it. Let's talk about point number two, technology. So when I go to your shop, I definitely can see the difference in uh, Heartland Cutting Tools versus a lot of the other special cutter grinder um, specials company that that we've been to. And you guys do have very updated equipment. And how do you think that that uh, has played a role in, in your success? It's been the number one positive impact on surviving since the bad economy in 2007, 2008. If we did not have this technology, we went from 28 employees down to about 10 or 11. While we lost sales, like many organizations during that bad uh, economy, um, we were able to survive. And it's because we had not only just the technology, we had new CNC with uh, what we call one clamping technology. A lot of my competitors who might be in the same arena with uh, you know their 
sales and marketing and types of tools. They use manual equipment or old 20-year-old machines. My thinking of capital equipment purchasing is every five to six years, turn the equipment over, sell it, trade it in, and get new equipment. The technology is tremendous. And we believe that without that technology, we would have not survived as a manual cutter grind shop. That's a commitment to a vision that you have for the company. I mean, it's not just, you know, we need to get this tax write off or, you know, um, this is really a commitment to a plan. It has to be. We are custom specials. We do not sell a widget. We manufacture two blueprint items. So um, as many of your customers out there can't wait four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks for a catalog item or a custom special made offshore, we need that technology. We need that CNC uh, to be able to get something out the door quick. So, yeah, it's something we all believe in. We're very lean. If you came to Heartland Cutting Tools and you not only saw the uh, equipment and how new it all is, um, we have one CNC operator for four machines. That's pretty much unheard of when it comes to CNC tool and cutter grinding. It's usually one to two or one to three maybe. We're we're one to four. And that's great, and that's what helps keep you so cost competitive so that you can work with partners such as ourselves and be able to, you know, outsource that side of the business too, which we're going to, we're going to get into a little bit later. Let's actually talk about this whole idea of staying focused on only selling and marketing through distribution companies. So you mentioned to me that this is one of your core values as a company, which is, you know, point number three, which is um, the core value, the old idea of the flywheel. Tell us a little bit about that. The old idea of the flywheel, or we want to call it almost just inertia, you know, in the old days, if you made a good tool and you sold it to a customer, they'd buy more. Those days are, as we well know, very very far and few between. So by making the decision to sell through distribution, you know, we don't have any other costs associated with factory reps. We don't have to have uh, manufacturers reps around the country. You know, we can't be everywhere and be in every small end user or large end user for that fact. Going through distribution, there's the cost that we would have had if we had to have factory people out there. So utilizing their expertise. And when I say that, it's it's really an extension of the distributor. We try to be their, you know, own regrind company, if you will, and own custom special manufacturing company. We're in the business of manufacturing cutting tools, and that alone takes a lot of care. So selfishly, I do love this point. And many of your competitors like to play both sides of the fence. They like to sell direct and they also like to sell through distribution. And in many of those cases, I, as a um, business owner of a, of a distribution company who services the metalworking industry, I choose not to do business with the, with those people. I think it's a conflict. And I think it's great that you've decided to just make a choice and make that a part of your business plan, um, just like you've made keeping up with technology a part of your business plan. That direct-to-consumer model, it works in a lot of situations, but there are a lot of situations, like you said, where you could stay focused on your manufacturing, staying focused on lean, and staying focused on the things that you do best, where you really can you know, manufacture at such a cost level that it, you become cost-competitive with the, uh, the people that do sell direct. And and we at Heartland we don't even look at it. For example, and saying all this, and we have a really nice relationship with Zanger's Industrial, and and one of your salespeople named Tom Sanger has customers in McHenry County that are close to us. We actually, when we're on the road traveling to other distributors, maybe outside of Illinois, and we're driving through that area, we have no problems dropping off tools. Uh, you guys, uh, being Zanger's Industrial, have one customer in Elgin that. 
I would probably say once a month, twice a month, we drop off orders for them because your customer does not like to pay UPS charges. And we understand that and we feel for him. So we actually drop that off. So to us, we understand it works both ways. And also that salesperson, Tom Sanger, when he gets opportunities, he can write it down, jot it down on a napkin, text it to me, and I'm the first one to respond directly to his customer with an answer. That's great. And, and you guys have definitely made us look good. And you know, I, I do commend you for being that partner that really, you do a great job of just flying under the radar, helping us look good. And and really, we just we just keep coming back with to you guys as a great service provider and somebody that can really get us out of a jam, help us to provide that, um, you know, that continuous improvement for our customers. And, and we just, we really do uh, appreciate that service. So let's move on to um, point number four, which you said was um, human touch. So um, you felt that that was still a um, a big um, attribute that you could bring to the table that differentiates you. Yeah, I think Heartland, I, I always want to have somebody answer the phone. Uh, don't we all just hate calling a credit card company or trying to get a hold of somebody at a, a large organization and, and you can never talk to them? So uh, we at Heartland always feel like customer service should come first no matter who calls on the phone. We treat our vendors, suppliers, and customers as we treat our family. Well, I think there's a certain level of um, empathy that you could bring to the situation too. I know like for you guys, it's not just about you know manufacturing that print. It's about you know understanding with us who that end user is, who they're serving, and making sure that there's some empathy there that if they have a machine down because they just went through some, um, you know, rapid production and used up all their inventory, you know, you understand what they're going through and you're going to jump through hoops in order to help solve their problems. It's not just a, you know, a print on a paper. Again, that's what we call the human touch. Um, and it doesn't matter the value of that order, whether it's $100, $1,000 or $10,000. It's all about taking care of the customer. It still means something. You know, it was one of the most humbling experiences that I saw when we were at IMTS 2016, Jason. What's that? Remember when we were in the IMTS TV booth and we were right across from the student center? All of those young millennials, those high school students, those elementary students, all of those young people. They're so excited. Learning about an industry that we are so impassioned about. Yeah, these are high school kids. That was awesome. I know. And IMTS 2018, I'm looking on their site, imts.com right now. I cannot believe how much they're trying to engage with that future workforce. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, I brought my my young son, who is not anywhere close to high school, to IMTS. I ran into Doug Woods. He thought it was awesome that uh, my son Brady was there looking at all the machining technologies. And I would encourage manufacturing leaders out there, bring your kids, check it out, get them excited about manufacturing. Yeah, get on their site, look at their Smart Force Student Summit, Manufacturing Brighter Futures. I love that tagline. Now, this last point I thought was kind of interesting because I didn't I didn't see this coming, but you felt that your P-System was a differentiating point for you as well. And I guess in hindsight, when I look at some of the other custom special grinding operations that I've been to, I have noticed a complacency in the way that they handle their systems and their processes. And usually there's really no ERP system there. So you really feel that that's an advantage for you. 
A huge advantage. And and sometimes I look at it, we're such a small company, but I've invested uh, in this ERP and it's it's, uh, quite a cost to do that. Our ERP system, we bring up the tool number at the touch of a button. We have customer history, customer tracker, part wizard, part advisor. It's like looking into a fishbowl and getting a clear understanding of what's there. We know what's in stock. We know how many turns we've had. And a lot of times when our distributor salespeople are out on the road and they can't get a hold of somebody back at the office, they call us and tell us, you know, do you have any of those in stock? Hey, what was, what did we sell it at last time? Um, And all of this, again, there's that getting back to that human touch uh, quickly, instantly on the phone. What are you seeing a lot of right now in custom specials? Is it what should people be looking at? Is it is it thread mills? Is it different types of um, geometries and end mills? What exactly are the the newest trends, I guess, in, in custom special tools? What we're seeing lately is what grade of carbide and what coating can we put on that tool with our experience to make that tool last longer? Is it a certain grade of carbide that we can use to work better in the application for stainless steel? Is there a certain coating that can be applied to make that tool last longer? When it comes to custom specials, it all comes down to lead time anymore. As I've said previously, that distributors have to be everything to everybody. Uh, And I said, oh, maybe cutting tool manufacturers really do not have to offer all of that, we have to at least be willing to see if we can help the end user in any way we can. So there's many times we make products that we're not quite comfortable with doing, but then we find out here's a new niche for us. Here's a new product that we can get into. So longevity of how the tool lasts in your customer spindle is what we're finding. They just don't worry about cost, and of course, they want the tool quickly. They want to make sure if they're going to spend that money on a custom special that it can last many pieces. Now, I do remember the last time that I visited your shop, um, you did have a a new machine there that that did apply some kind of um, secondary process to the tool. I think it it gave it a finish, actually, right? Mm -hmm. And that is exactly correct. That uh, machine adds an edge prep primarily for tools that we sell uh, when we make tools for aluminum machining and drilling. It's called an Aerolap machine, and it, it offers a fine edge prep. We do not need to go out to an outside source. There is no coating. So we're applying a very, very thin layer of a diamond powder on the surface of the tool that makes the aluminum not hang up on the cutting edge. So everything when it comes to custom specials, when it's in the spindle, is all about edge prep. Is the tool honed? Is it not honed? Uh, Is it too sharp for the application? Is the hone too big? We, being in business since 1979, being a third-generation business, we also have a soft department. Our soft department at Heartland Cutting Tools is not only there to manufacture our steel bodies and complement that, it's there to do some R&D. So we do take a lot of our tools, put up some material that the customer is using and make some test cuts. Great. What are you seeing in, um, you mentioned this high polish in aluminum. What are you seeing in like some of your harder materials, like your ink canals and your aerospace materials? Well, again, it comes down to coating, and that is something Heartland is looking at and thinking about bringing in-house. I know a lot of our larger competitors have their own coating vessels. We still have to send that out. So over the next year, especially at IMTS, I'll be looking at some smaller vessels that we can bring in because in those exotic materials, especially in, you know, aerospace, it all comes down to the relief and the coatings that you put on 
Okay. So would you be bringing that in-house? Is that a continuous way of, of, of being more cost-effective in, in how you coat your tools? Or is it because you want to just have more control over the process or be able to do your own research? What, what, what would well, it's a combination of both there, Jason, because as a matter of fact, all of, especially some of your distributor salesmen are always saying, hey, can I get a tool quick? We can manufacture the tool quick. We stock uh, lots of carbide, if you will, even some steel. We can manufacture something within days. Our holdup is outsourcing. We only outsource two things. We outsource heat treating our steel bodies and coating. And coating right now, especially in the Midwest, even though there's four or five coating companies out there, they're all taking over a week to get it back. So we would be able to control all of our costs and our lead time to market. I hope that you do make that investment just for that reason, because I know our customers are busy. You 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 jump through hoops in order to get tools ground for us. So I do appreciate that. And I do know from experience that the holdup is always the coding. But you have to have that coding. Now, I do have one last question. We actually have several customers out there and users that are doing machining who utilize their own cutter grinders from small cutter grinder operations in order to make special tools to I even know a couple of our customers that have CNC grinders um, for making commodity type end mills and drills. What would you say to those people in in regards to their business model and, and what they're doing to produce their own tools? Even Caterpillar, my company I've been selling for well over 26, 27 years, they are now in the process of eliminating their tool grind department because they understand that they just don't have the workforce and the experienced, skilled people to do it. So what I tell organizations like that is if they want to bring it into their own organization and try to control that, there's going to be a lot of other auxiliary costs, hidden costs that they don't know. Diamond wheels, CBN wheels, uh, the experience of having cutter grinders that know how to work with many different tool materials. So what I tell people is that typically if you sell a tool for $100, a, a regrind cost is typically around one-third of the cost of a new tool. They're not going to be able, if they look at all their costs from an accounting point of view, they are not going to be able to do that for less cost than they can if they gave it back to the manufacturers who made the tools. Um, there's so much more than having just the machine every month and making that payment. So there's a lot of hidden costs that they just don't know. And this gets back to my point about a lot of the distributors around the country that have it. As long as you have uh, a relationship like, let's say, a Zanger's Industrial does with Heartland Cutting Tools, and we respond when you guys ask us to do something quickly, we are your manufacturing arm. If you had to bring that in-house, um, we call our top CNC setup guys master grinders. And if I tell you in Illinois that there's probably less than eight master grinders left, there might be six. And how many have worked at Heartland? Two. Okay. So what would be the difference between a master grinder and not? A master grinder for a tool and cutter grinder who can work on a four or five axis machine. Some of these CNC machines actually are called six, seven, eight, nine axis machines. It's a little bit of an illusion or a smoke and mirror when they market the machine because they're soft axes, they're tail stocks, they're traveling steadies. Um, but the difference between a master grinder and a grinder who can run cutter grind machines is that a master grinder started years ago manually and they know how to work 
on manufacturing cutting tools on a manual brown and sharp cincinnati cutter grinder hipco form relief tool grinder and then they moved into the cnc 20 years ago that is the difference a master cnc tool and cutter grinder started his career working manually is there still an opportunity for somebody to start off on the manual grinders and then move up to the cnc or is that just unheard yes of now no these days? uh we we are currently doing it at heartland we do a lot of cross training so we hired a kid uh, about a year ago a young kid i'm gonna say 25 years old as a kid we started him in the shipping department he has since now moved into an off shift so he spends his first four to five hours working in this uh, shipping department and he works a nine-hour shift every day his last part uh, of uh, from f- four in the afternoon to nine at night, he is working on manual equipment. He's cutting off blanks when they're done. He's chamfering tools. He's connecting the coolant holes. So he's getting a full understanding of how the cutting tool process happens and is completed uh, on the manual equipment. We use less and less manual equipment now. We typically only use it to finish the cutting tools. We no longer use it to start. But sure, um, it's just hard to bring the young generation into that. Uh, they want instant satisfaction, instant gratification. They want to work on the CNC machines. They want to work on the quarter million dollar machine. They want to work on the big machines. They want to make the big money. Um, and as long as they can buy in, by the time they're 28, 30 years old, they could be making a good living and, and on their way to being a master grinder. That's great. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that everybody from the Metalworking Nation can really um, get some benefit and, try and understand the way that the uh, specials custom grinding business operates from this conversation. Well, I hope so too, uh, Jason, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, as I said early on, I'm, I'm honored you asked me and uh, look forward to... Uh, more young people getting into our industry. And thanks for the opportunity to talk with you guys. Thanks, Mike. So, Jim, that was my interview with Mike Polizzi from yeah, Hardman nice. Cutting Tools. And I have a question for you. Yes. Are you a master machinist? You know, Jason, now that I think about it, and after hearing the interview... Though how he I, defines a master grinder. I would definitely say I am a master machinist. Yeah, I've so you started many, out on the Bridgeport and... Many years of, of on a, a Bridgeport milling machine and a, a conventional lathe. So, yeah, I know how to do all that stuff and then segue into CNC machining and programming and CAD CAM technology and... Did you have to beg... God, I'd feel old! <laughs> Man! Did you have to beg your dad to buy a CNC machine? Um, no, I didn't. Or was that his it choice? It was kind of his, it was his, his vision. vision. Oh, good for he him. He had a vision. I don't think he was sold on it. And that's why he only bought one. Okay. And so we got our feet wet with it. And then after I showed him that we could be much more efficient by utilizing CNC technology and I could, you know, significantly cut the times down based on the, the manual machining, then it resonated with him. And then he knew that was the direction we needed to go into. So it was interesting in my interview with Mike that he talked about replacing his machines every five to six years because yes, the technology gets stale after that period of time. And you've, you've looked to do that in your business as well. I have to say, being a small manufacturer, having a small shop, it's really hard. And it's sometimes, Jason, it's a little it's a little scary oh, yeah. to invest that kind of money in buying this new equipment because you think, oh my God, you know, I've got to make that big payment. And what if the business doesn't come? What if we slip into recession? But you know what? It's all risk versus reward. Well, I've seen a lot of um, people that are in the same business as Mike that haven't made those investments. And guess what? They're going out of business. They're being sold. They're, they're losing customers. And 
And I actually know a customer, um, they've since gone out of business, very much in the same line of business that you are in. And he never invested in the CNC machinery until it was too late and he was already losing business. Yeah. Well, I mean, he could reclaim it, but he's got to work fast. Well, he's gone now. Oh, he's gone. Oh, he didn't make it. He didn't make it. He's gone. He didn't. Re- no, he didn't. He I'm didn't sorry. have that vision, and he didn't invest. That makes me feel bad for him. But um, this no. was a long time ago, yeah. though. This is in 2008. Because it's it, you know it, it's tough being an owner operator of a small manufacturing company nowadays. There's just so many dynamics in, in running a business, and you know sometimes it's a little overwhelming, quite frankly. And um, but anyway, I want to get back to the article. Um, you know, I, I loved it when he when he said here he was. He got fired from his job right out of college, and he's 21 years old, and he. He shows up to work for the father-in-law well, in a he three-piece see- suit, and the father-in-law says, uh-uh, take your coat off. Take your- You're going right out in the shop, and you're going to go on that brown and sharp number five grinder. You're going to be grinding, man. You're going to get your hands dirty. And that's what it's all about. And, you know, I did, quite frankly, I did that with my son, Ryan. He has been working in the shop since day one. And it really does, because when you force a person to go out in the shop and learn the business... From the ground floor up, you can do anything once you have that knowledge in you. You can move up the ladder and you can sell your business better because you you know exactly what it's all about, what it takes. And you can empathize with the shop floor and the kind of challenges that are happening. And when you have those conversations with a customer, you understand what it takes to meet that production right. and that makes a difference and you know that that would be something that i would ask um the metalworking nation is if you are a generational business which we know from the feedback that we've gotten that most of our listeners are generational businesses it's very um, common it's in this very industry. it's very common in this industry and do you have you know people that are going to be taking over the reins eventually and they've never worked on the shop floor i mean you might want yeah. to have and you know what? step he, back and do that. He really, he really took a, a toll when he said he went from twenty eight employees uh, down to ten in the yeah. recession. That's that's significant. I don't even think we cut. No, that's like sixty seven percent. Yeah, of but his he's. Workforce. I mean, he's thriving now. I mean, I know, but not, he not, made a cognizant yeah, decision and to change and, and invest. Yep, absolutely. And like I said, it's scary to do that, but obviously it pays off in the long run. And I think what he's also done too is he. He said that he's got one machinist running four CNC machines. And when he said that, I was like, wow, I'd, I'd really like to see that because that's tough to do. He obviously has implemented efficiencies in his shop that he can run production. And I don't know, does he run too much production or is it all mostly custom? It's, it it's, sounds like it's, it's custom. all custom. It's all custom. But there are some uh, runs that are you know of a higher quantity, but that might be you know 100 pieces or something like that. Right. You two talked a, a lot about selling through distributorship Correct. versus- Because um, that's how I know him. Right. Of course. Remember, too, that uh, us as machine shop owners and operators that are buying tools and equipment, we sometimes- say, you know, well, why should I buy from Zangers if I can just go right on that guy's website oh, totally. and buy the yeah. tool? I, I hear that all the time. Yeah, and, and I, because, you know, it's going to take that much more paperwork and that much more lead time. But I, I think you, you said something to me just earlier today about that dynamic. And why don't you explain it to the listeners? Because it's it's valid. There's a couple factors here. So like one of the factors that I would say is that when it comes to customer service and processing transactions, 
nobody does it quicker than us. I mean, we we literally, Jim, you would be amazed. Well, we process just thousands and thousands of transactions a week. I mean, you would be with the small staff that we have thousands. And so we are very efficient at the way we process transactions, A. So I I would say that we do that much better than the manufacturer that you're dealing with direct. Now, that's part A. Part B would be... Well, he he did mention that he had a... a, a, He does have state-of-the-art ERP system. system, Right, right. Which I have to give him credit for that a lot. lot But he's he's still not quite as efficient from a transactional standpoint as we are. Okay, back Um, to Zanger. Part part B would be, when you might call him direct... You have, you know, you're a customer and he's going to treat you very well or just any anybody that you're dealing with directly, they're going to treat you very well. But if you were to go to me and say, you know what, Jason, our machine's down. We just broke our last special cutting tool and I've got to get this thing shipped out today. If you call me and then you I have a relationship I, with him. Well, I've got not only a relationship, but a but cloud. I mean, I'll, I'll shoot Mike a text and say, hey, Mike. My buddy Jim's got a machine down. I need part X, Y, Z done today. And mm-hmm. and because of the relationship that we have, he's going to jump through hoops to get that done now, I get for that. me, for you. And that makes sense. Thank you for identifying But that's a valid that. point because you would think point. you would think intuitively that, you know, yeah, you're cutting that process out. And, and it, intuitively, it makes sense to me too. But from an efficiency standpoint, it actually is more efficient. Right. And then one thing that he did mention in, in your interview, which I thought was well done, was trends and cutting tool because again, being the owner operator of a small manufacturing company, it's really important for me to know about how much faster can we run that end mill, how much faster can we run that drill, coding, grades of carbide, longevity of the tool, and of course, lead times is another important thing too. Um, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting when he talked about getting a new machine to put a secondary process, uh, a fit, an edge prep on some of the tools that he was uh, manufacturing. I, I think that's great because what he's doing is he's diversifying himself from his competition he's by looking being outside able to do of the box. that. Yep, exactly. One thing I, I wanted to ask you, and, and maybe you do or don't know the answer to this, but are his coatings proprietary? Because I know a lot of the major manufacturers of cutting tools have proprietary coatings, the recipe for putting those coatings on. Can I tell you a secret? Yeah, I'd like to. I, okay. Can you, are you going to get in trouble? Are I you going to get spanked? Maybe. maybe. Yeah. I, might get, I might get spanked. Okay. There are some proprietary coatings. Yeah. But for the most part, a lot of it is branding. Okay, I get that. I get. I you're you're talking to a leader in branding. I, I totally understand it. Yeah. So I mean, there are some some things that you can do, but for the most part, a lot of it is very very similar. Now there are some manufacturers out there that have stayed ahead of the competition, and they've come out with their own proprietary coatings. It's they're definitely there. They're the exception, not the rule. But generally, people catch up after a few years. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I want to comment. It's important for me to know. If we're using a half-inch solid carbide end mill with a variable pitch, I call them chatter-free end mills. That's mm-hmm. how I know them. What should the cost of that regrind be opposed to the cost of a new? Is well, it Mike one mentioned, third? Mike one mentioned one-third. One okay, so and, and if a general... new end mill co- uh, cost 50 then the regrind should be $16. Is that right? Yeah, it sounds about right. And you know, we've done this analysis with some of our clients where we figured out at what point it makes sense just to trash the tool as opposed to regrind the tool. So for example, with, with one of our clients, um, because of the nature of the tools that they're using and their processes, we have data to back this up. We, we said, okay, 316 and below, 
throw it in the recycling bin. Anything above that, and we're gonna we're gonna regrind it. Now there are some exceptions to that, uh, both we, on the big and the small side. Anything okay. three eighths or more, we have it reground. Three eighths or less, we typically once again recycle. It, it depends on the the client and, right. and what they're right. using. So yep. for you, yes, that makes sense because you're using a different type of tool than this particular client that Got I'm it. referring to. Got it. So all in all, what did we learn from this and what's the takeaway for the Metalworking Nation? There's several takeaways that you can learn from this. Um, uh, the first takeaway is are you looking at your machine tools that are five or six years old and putting a vision, a plan in place and saying, do I need to replace these? What is my time frame for replacing my technology? Because technology is increasing all the time and you are going to get left behind if you don't do that. I agree. Um, and also totally the same agree. thing goes for your ERP system. And then I guess, you know, going in, in the opposite direction, do you need to take some of your people and actually get them, you know, on the manual machines from a training standpoint so that they understand what it takes to make a part, what it takes to make a tool um, so that when they are in front of the customer or when they're talking about the business, they really know it from a grassroots level. Mm -hmm. He's got a great vision for his company, and obviously, he's done very well. I loved his story of you know how he shared his evolution in the business. Um, you know, being that his wife's father owned the company. Again, it's scary to push the envelope and sign off on a new expensive machine tool. But I think at the end of the day, you've got to take that risk to get the reward. Jim, I totally agree with you. And you know, you are going through that right now. I, mean, I am. You, you have had an increase in business and you're, you've bought several new machine tools. I mean, and it's your, been your, scary. Shop, your shop is completely changing. Yep. So let's just hope I can talk about some success. Anyway, at the end of the day, bam. As always, thank you for listening to the Making Chips podcast. You need to increase the speed and feet of your business. If you're not elevating your manufacturing leadership, you're going to get left behind. The Metalworking Nation is committed to a new way to stay ahead of the competition. We have more content to help you make and elevate at makingchips.com. Gain access to exclusive content, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you. We'll see you next time. Right, let me start that again. Would you stop playing around with your computer? I know, sorry. So can, you want to finish? Is this really important? I'm that you're going to interrupt at the our show, I'm looking podcast? at our show structure. <laughs>